0: So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be continuing our study in the book of Jonah. So we're going to be reading Jonah chapter two. Actually gonna start in the the last verse of Jonah one and then we'll read Jonah chapter two. And so you can turn uh, in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the pew back in front of you. Um, And I'm not sure what page, it's gonna be around page 774. Um, but Jonah chapter two is what we're going to be um, looking at. And Jonah, it is a well-known story. And so, part of the struggle that that I've had is is trying to come to it and 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 looking at it and and seeing what what is what what's the truth here. What what can we learn from this story? And it's easy to think that because you know what happens, that that you have nothing to learn from this book. But hopefully, you'll see as I saw this past week. That, that the part of the story we're gonna look at today, it's not a well-known part. In fact, I, I would be tempted to say many of you have not actually read in depth the prayer of Jonah, it's often skipped over, but, but as I spent time this past week studying this prayer, I found that I didn't really know Jonah as well as I thought. Um, and so my hope is that as we study today, um, you will come to know Jonah. Uh, and, and in fact, the very thing that I didn't know about Jonah was the fact that Jonah didn't really know the Lord and so, as we'll see in the prayer of Jonah, he talks a lot about the Lord. He talks about, uh, a lot about what the Lord did for him, but underneath his words, I think we'll see an assumption about the Lord, an assumption about himself that, that Jonah makes that proves that he doesn't know the Lord as he's praying uh, from the belly of the fish. And so that's, that's what we're gonna read and that's what we're gonna see. So Jonah, uh, beginning in verse 17, of chapter one, let me turn there. It's not page 700 in my Bible. All right, so verse 17 of chapter one, and then I'll read through chapter 10 so you can follow along as I read. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, pray with me as as we begin. Father, I ask, I plead with you to teach us, your people, from your word, And especially as we look at Jonah, Lord, would you remind us of our utter dependence on your mercy? Lord, forgive us for thinking that we don't need mercy. Lord, all we have is of your mercy. And so would you drive that point home as we look at this rebellious prophet of whom we are no better. So teach us, I pray, in in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, we're gonna look at, at three points here. And so the three points that we'll work through, if you're taking notes here, here's kind of our outline. And we'll see the sequence of events, the, the last verse of chapter one, which will kind of set the stage. And then the majority, actually 90% of chapter two is just Jonah's prayer. So we'll look at his prayer um, and then we'll look thirdly, finally. And this may be, if you're keeping records, this may be the the shortest point that I've ever preached. So as you'll see, when we get to point three, it will be extremely short, so hang on till we get there. If you get lost in the middle, be sure and come back for point three. Now, but let's start there, the sequence of events, the, the last verse there of chapter one, verse 17, and, and as we begin looking at this passage, I think verse 17 does fit better with chapter two than with chapter one, but as we begin, I think it, it'll be helpful for, for me to kind of reconstruct the sequence of events that take place because it's a bit confusing because Jonah goes through these events and these praying, he's in the belly of the fish, and he's talking about what happened before, and, and so I found that it was helpful for me to just reconstruct what happened, uh, because as I, as I was reading through this, I was asking questions that I thought I should have known, and, and I, I thought, well, well, maybe it was Miss Alexander or Miss Blankenship back in my early Sunday school days that they just, they just aired me, they, they sent me on the wrong, wrong path, uh, but I've had to guess, you will benefit from just kind of walking through what is, what is the sequence of events here, uh, because it's, it's easy to be confused. And so first thing, first thing, notice where we left off last week, where, where Pastor Will ended in verse 16 of chapter one. So you see there, verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Now the men being talked about in verse 16 are the, the mariners, the sailors, who, who had been on board with Jonah. They had seen the Lord's miraculous work. They feared the Lord and they offered sacrifices and made vows, not to their gods whom they were previously calling out to, but to the God of Israel. In other words, these sailors, Jonah's overboard, and they are rightly rightly worshiping the one true God of Israel. And, And all of this was after Jonah goes overboard. In fact, it was his being thrown overboard and the storm that immediately ceased from its raging that moves these sailors to fear and worship. And so in one sense, verse 16 could be an appropriate end to the story. We could quite easily see the glory of God and the salvation of these mariners and forget about Jonah, Right? He, he would simply be remembered as the rebellious prophet who refused to obey his commission, who, who attempted to flee from the Lord and who was thrown to his deserved death. Right? If it ended at verse 16, it would make sense. It'd be fitting for verse 15 to mark the end of Jonah. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. I mean, as Pastor Will pointed out, the, the throwing of Jonah overboard certainly marked what the mariners thought to be the end of Jonah, They certainly believed, and I think Jonah believed, that casting him overboard in the midst of the great storm was casting him to a sure and certain death. And so the life and story of Jonah in his own mind, in the mind of the mariners, and in the the mind of the first readers, this would have marked the end of Jonah, which is why when we come to verse 17 and we read that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, we recognize, wow, this is a miraculous event. This is an unbelievable or inconceivable appointment of the Lord appointing this fish to swallow Jonah because the Lord appoints this great fish and saves or delivers Jonah. And so after this this salvation, as it were, Jonah spends three days and three nights in the fish, which all takes place there between verses 17 and and the verse one of chapter two, because the verse one of chapter two says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord. And so chapter two is, is his prayer. And so Jonah, as he's, as he's recounting this prayer, he's not inside this fish writing out a prayer. So boys and girls, he's not doing that. There's not a lamp or a desk in this fish that he's writing in this prayer. That's not what's happening. He's remembering what he prayed before he was in the fish while he's in the fish. And his prayer from inside the fish and his remembering of what he prayed inside the fish is recounting what happened to him before being swallowed by the fish. In other words, Jonah wasn't swallowed by the fish soon after he hit the water. Right? Sometimes you see pictures. There's the, there's the boat, and then there's Jonah like a, a, a few inches below the surface, and there's this big fish coming. That, that's not the events as they're laid out here. The sequence seems to be that Jonah's thrown overboard. He sinks to the depths, right? According to his prayer, he's at the bottom where, where the roots of the mountains are, where seaweed is, is around his head. And then there's a great fish that is appointed to swallow him and save him. And so one commentator summarizes the events this way. The Lord threw Jonah into the deep, and before the fish arrived, Jonah recognized that he had been cast out of God's sight. Still, in his prayer, he looked toward God's holy temple, and as time wore on, he sank as low as possible before finally being rescued by the fish. And so all this is important, I think, because it helps make sense of the prayer of Jonah that makes up this majority of chapter 2. And so it says that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, which means that though the prayer is from the belly of the fish, the events of the prayer from the belly of the fish took place before he was in the belly of the fish. Am I confusing you more by trying to clarify? So so Jonah, the, the point I'm trying to make, Jonah's prayer comes from a point of desperation. He's fallen to the depths, and then he cries out to the Lord. And it's in response to his prayer, to his crying out, that the Lord appoints this great fish to swallow him. And it's then, as Jonah's at the bottom of the fish, that the Lord surprisingly answers and delivers the rebellious prophet. Which then you fast forward all the way to the last verse of chapter two, verse 10. After three days and three nights, Jonah is vomited out upon the dry land, which then the narrative picks up in chapter three with him being commissioned a second time, and him actually going this time. Okay, so Jonah's thrown overboard, he sinks, he comes to his census, cries out to the Lord, the swish fish swallows him. Jonah spends three nights and three days in the fish. At that point, he records the prayer of being rescued, swallowed by the fish. At the end of this three-day and three-night stay, all expense, expenses paid, he then is vomited back onto dry land. Okay? So, so that's, that's what happens. That's the sequence. And so I, that was helpful for me if for no one else. But let's look at his prayer, which makes up the majority of chapter 2. So there, Jonah prays, verses 1 through 9. So Jonah's prayer. Now, as we look at this prayer, I want to make one thing very clear at the outset. Now, there is... In this prayer, there's a lot of truth, a lot of true things that the prophet says about God. Right? So, so we'll see that. However, and here's the thing I want you to see, there is something in this prayer, or rather something that is lacking from this prayer. Right? And so to understand what's going on here, as we, as we look at this prayer, there's going to be two points, two sub-points, which I don't do this often, but there's two sub-points. So we're going to see what Jonah does say, So what is the truth that he does say? But then we have to recognize what Jonah doesn't say. So so those are the two sections under this prayer. So we're going to separate his prayer into what he does say and what he doesn't say. So first look at what he does say. What he does say. Truth number one, he says in this prayer that the Lord is the Lord who hears the cries of his people. Look at verse two. I cried out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol which is just the place of the dead. I cried and you heard my voice. And so Jonah knows that the Lord answered his cry because the Lord heard his voice. This is what Jonah says. This is what Jonah knows to be true about God, that he hears. It's also how Jonah explains what happened to him down in verse seven. When my life was fainting away, I remembered you and my prayer came to you. In other words, your ears, my prayer, my cry reached you. Jonah says he remembered the Lord even when his life was fading away, even when he was sinking to his watery grave. Even then, from the depths of the sea, his prayer reached the Lord. Jonah knew, as he was sinking to his sure and certain death, that his only hope was the God who hears. And he had that hope because he knew his history. Specifically, he knew the history of his people, of God's chosen people, the Israelites. The Israelites. And the reality is that this truth about God had been and continues to be the hope of all of God's people throughout the ages, that God is a God who hears. Believer, your God is a God who hears. I mean, this is found throughout the entire Bible. I mean, think about the Old Testament. Think about, do you remember in Genesis chapter four after Cain kills his brother Abel? Genesis chapter four, the Lord goes to Cain and says, hey, where's your brother? Well, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper is the reply. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In other words, I hear what you did because the innocent sufferer is crying out to me. I hear that there's an issue. I hear the need. Abel had suffered death at the hands of his jealous brother. And though Abel couldn't cry out, his blood did. And the Lord heard the cry of Abel's innocent blood that had been shed. Or probably the most famous example, and if you're reading the Bible in the five-day reading plan that we're all trying to do, laboring to do, keep pressing on. But if you're, if you're following along, and you're up to date, tomorrow morning you'll read about probably the most famous example in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Remember the story of Joseph and Joseph and his family, they, they explode in terms of a population boom in Egypt and a Pharaoh comes to power who doesn't know Joseph and doesn't know the, the Israelites. And he's like, these, these people are, are miserable. We got to get rid of them. So they, they put these harsh rules on them and, and, try, and try and discourage them and, and then cast them out. And one of the things they do is they, they, the, the Pharaoh says, we're going to kill all the, the males born, all the Israelite males, which is where Moses comes in. Remember, he's thrown in a basket, not just because his mom's like, hey, today's a good day for a swim. It's because I don't want my son to be killed by Pharaoh. And so they put him in a basket, and then providentially, uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses. But it's during this difficult time for Israel when they're under this harsh taskmaster master, living in a foreign land. Remember, they had to leave their land because of Famine. But at the end of Exodus 2, this is what it says. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What a a powerful description of God's covenant relationship with his people. He heard the groans of his people. They were in distress. They were being treated harshly, and their cries were heard by their covenant-keeping God. Our God is a God who hears. The examples could be multiplied over and over again. Think of the many psalms where the psalmist cries for help in the midst of danger or trouble, and the Lord hears and responds to the cries of his people. Well, this is the first truth that Jonah recognizes about the Lord. The Lord is a Lord who hears the cries of his people. Whether it's from the ground in a field outside of Eden or the cries of an oppressed people in Egypt, or even a rebellious prophet in the belly of a great fish, the Lord hears the cries of his people. So that's the first truth. We'll come back to that. But but that's the first thing that Jonah does say. Second thing Jonah says, second truth is that the Lord is a Lord who is sovereign over all things. Second truth that Jonah does say is that the Lord is sovereign. Look there at verse three. He says, For you, talking to the Lord, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows they passed over me. Now, as we read those verses, it's not hard to find fault with Jonah's recollection of the events. Right? Because up in chapter one, in the midst of this storm-tossed sea, at the urging of Jonah himself, The sailors, these mariners were the ones who cast Jonah into the sea. And in fact, verse 15 explicitly says, so they, that is the the men on board, the mariners, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. It is the Lord that Jonah says, cast him into the sea. But verse 15 of chapter one says the sailors who did it. So what's Jonah thinking here? Is he just wrong about what happened? Did did this fall into the sea mess with his memory? I think the point that Jonah's making is the truth about the Lord, that he is sovereign over all things, even the actions of the sailors on the ship. Right? This is why in verse four, Jonah says, I am driven from your sight. Who else but a sovereign God has driving Jonah? And a crucial thing to note here is that Jonah has no doubt as to who's behind the storm and the impending death. It is the Lord's waves that are crashing on him. It is the Lord who has cast him into the depths to this watery grave. But as Jonah is is experiencing these things and as he's sinking, he knows that he has disobeyed the Lord. He knows that he is fleeing from the Lord. And he knows that the Lord is the one who's bringing all of this to pass. And this, this God that Jonah knew was sovereign over all things Right, so so Jonah, though he's running and though he's at the mercy of God, though he knows God is at work, Jonah continues on his in his rebellion. Right, but that doesn't change the fact that Jonah still recognizes that the Lord is sovereign over all things. I mean, we see it not just in in this prayer, but in the storm. In the casting of lots on on the ship, in the appointing of the great fish, in in chapter 3 when we see this surprising response of the Ninevites, in chapter 4 with the, the, the appointing of this great plant, the Lord's sovereignty is all over the book of Jonah. That is a main point. In all of these instances, the Lord is sovereignly working all things according to the counsel of his will. And Jonah knows that. This is the Lord that Jonah has been called to serve. This is the Lord that that Jonah told the mariners that he fears. Though that was an ironic statement because he clearly doesn't fear him. Because he's running from them, running from him. He's the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah knew this. And we can recognize that just like the God is the God who hears is all throughout the Bible, anyone who reads the history of the Israelites knows that God is sovereign over all things. You can't read the, the creation account or the family history of Abraham and, and all his sons or the events of the lives of the great prophets Elijah or Elisha. You can't read the story of Ruth or or Esther or the life of King David. In fact, you, you can't read the Bible recognizing it as a historical of account of God's dealings with humanity, the things that actually happened. You can't read the Bible and not conclude that the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, is not sovereign. He can be anything but. He can't be anything but sovereign. In the words of that theologically robust nursery song, he's got the whole wide world. Where? In his hands. You and me, brother. Where? The whole world. That's true. That is true. The Lord is sovereign. He's the one who can do all things. The the one of whom Job says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Do you know what that means? It means no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is what it means to be the one true and living God. The same one whom the apostle Paul would say, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you know what that means? It means he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so Jonah acknowledges that the Lord is sovereign. Which leads to the third thing that Jonah does say, the third truth, which is that the Lord is a Lord who delivers. So he hears, he's sovereign, and he delivers. This follows naturally from the first two truths. If if he hears and he's sovereign, it makes sense that the Lord would hear and create or respond accordingly and save or deliver Jonah. And so Jonah does. That's how he interprets this deliverance. Look at verse 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. Jonah traces the source of his deliverance, not to the fish, but to the Lord who used this fish to deliver him. There's no doubt in Jonah's mind that his deliverance in the belly of the fish was the Lord's doing. The Lord had heard and had answered. And so Jonah saw this fish as the means of deliverance. We don't know what he thought those three days and three nights, but he definitely recognizes that this is deliverance from the Lord. And he knew that the Lord only could deliver, which is why he contrasts the deliverance that he'd experienced with the deliverance that those who, those who worship vain idols, idols could never expect. Look there, verse 8 and 9. Notice this contrast. Those who pay regard to vain idols... They forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, contrast, I with the voice of thanksgiving, I'm going to sacrifice to you. I'm going to vow what I've paid. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah sees only the Lord and not vain idols as capable of this deliverance. According to Jonah's prayer, no idol can deliver, which is true. Only the Lord can deliver. But here's the thing. This is what I want us to see. Is that while Jonah knew these things to be true about the Lord... The reality is that he doesn't seem to know the Lord. To know things about the Lord is not the same as to know the Lord. Did you know that? And we will see from start to finish the book of Jonah, the main character, Jonah himself, is at odds with the very heart of the Lord that he says he knows. What he knows about God doesn't lead him to awe and wonder. Instead, It leads him to contempt and anger. We're going to get to the end of chapter four and we're going to be like, what in the world? Who is this prophet? You have to wait to to get there. But this is why I agree wholeheartedly with one commentator who says, considered abstractly, the theology of Jonah's prayer is orthodox. These are true things about God. But this guy continues, when seen in the context of the book, a different picture emerges. And what he means is that although Jonah proclaims these things to be true, though he recognizes that the Lord hears and the Lord's sovereign, the Lord delivers, the reality is that Jonah has been running. Jonah has been sinfully running away from this Lord, away from this divine commission, refusing to obey, fleeing from his very presence. And Jonah has brought all of this disaster upon himself. It's Jonah's fault that he's going through what he's going through. And despite all that the Lord has done in pursuing Jonah, Despite this merciful pursuit of this rebellious prophet, Jonah still doesn't say a word about his part in any of it. In fact, one commentator notes in the midst of this terrifying and oppressive situation, Jonah finds his own behavior worthy of extended comment. Throughout this prayer, let, let me just, just show you I called out, I said, I went down, I remembered, I will sacrifice, I will pay, right? This is Jonah's prayer. It's not hard to hear the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke's gospel. I thank you that I'm not like those pagan sailors up on that ship, Lord. Now, maybe you think I'm being too hard on Jonah. Just stay with me. Because what Jonah doesn't say, and here's the second point under, the, under Jonah's prayer, what Jonah doesn't say, the one thing that's missing from his prayer is repentance, There's no repentance. Jonah is not in awe of God's mercy because Jonah doesn't think he needs God's mercy. And this is most certainly true because of what happens in chapters three and four. Because Jonah witnesses the entire city of Nineveh from the greatest to least, repenting and receiving God's mercy. And he sees God's mercy extended to this entire city and he responds by saying, I wish I were dead. That's the prophet of the Lord saying that. A major point of the book is that, is that his deepest convictions of this prophet, what, 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 what drives him is squarely opposed to the Lord's gracious character. And that's what we have to wrestle with because in the book of Jonah, there's not a happy ending. As we'll see, I mean, I would encourage you to read the book. Read, read chapters three and four this week, because the book leaves the final response of Jonah in question, just, just hanging there. there. There's no resolution. So, so it's not as though Jonah is on his way to getting it, because in the, in the end of chapter four, it's as clear as ever that Jonah doesn't get it which is why as i've been reading and studying Jonah the more i'm coming to think of Jonah as a as a proto-pharisee which is simply he's just a pharisee before the pharisees were pharisees because here's why Jonah is driven by a proud self-righteousness that despises God's mercy being shown to others and what Jonah fails to see is that he himself is dependent on that very mercy Jonah is the one who doesn't think he needs a doctor And I think this attitude is evident by the way that Jonah ends his prayer. So, so look again at verses 8 and 9. Notice what Jonah says. And think about the context here. Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, contrast, I, with a voice of thanksgiving, I'm going to sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? So it's a contrast And Jonah contrasting the Lord with vain idols, but in doing so, he's also contrasting himself to those who pay regard to vain idols. And my question is, might he be thinking about anyone specific there? Had he, in the course of his travels, recently encountered any pagan idol worshipers? Of course he had. Do you remember? Do you remember on the ship, on the deck of the ship in the midst of the great storm, the the mariners are crying out to their gods? Saying, just cry out to your God, that your God, and Jonah's asleep, and the captain says, wake up and call out to your God, because we're crying to our gods, and it's not working, so maybe your God will help. The mirrors have been crying out to their false gods, and Jonah comes up and says, hey, I know what's going on here. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a prophet of the one true God, and here's why all this is happening, right? And they were afraid when Jonah tells them to throw him overboard because they're like, oh my goodness, there's one true God and and you're his prophet and you're telling us to throw you to your death, which though reluctant, they eventually do. And Jonah is thrown overboard and he doesn't know what happened on the ship, does he? He goes overboard probably thinking those pagan sailors have no hope of ever knowing my God, the God of Israel, he probably goes headlong overboard, assuming that those pagan sailors were gonna continue offering sacrifices and making, va- making vows to their vain idols. So Jonah, I am, I am saying, is thinking, I'm safe because I know the Lord. While well. those pagans have no hope of the Lord. But we know what happened after Jonah went overboard, right? In verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter one, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Do you see that? Do you see what happened? They feared the Lord, Jonah's Lord, the one true Lord exceedingly. And did you notice what they did? The two things in verse 16, they offered sacrifices to the Lord and they made vows. Now that's amazing that these pagan sailors would do those two things, but notice what Jonah said in verses eight and nine of chapter two. What does Jonah say that he's gonna do because of the Lord's deliverance? What is he going to do that separates him from those who pay regard to vain idols? He says, I am going to sacrifice the Lord and I'm going to pay what I vowed. That's not a coincidence. Jonah sees himself as the righteous one who has the Lord's favor. Yet the very thing that he assumes characterizes his relationship with the covenant God of Israel has actually already been done by the pagan sailors on the board of that ship that he was just thrown from. And so as we're reading this, the pagans are ahead of the prophet. And this is why I think it's important to recognize that although Jonah does say true things about the Lord, he doesn't say anything about his own sin or his own need for mercy. There's no repentance in this prayer. And this is why I think that Jonah misses the boat. I mean, as many commentators point out, if you read verses 1 through 9... This prayer has the feel of a psalm of thanksgiving. This is a type of psalm. If you read through the the book of Psalms, Psalms of thanksgiving are psalms where where the psalmist, most of of the time it's David, but the psalmist is in trouble and the Lord delivers them and then the psalmist gives thanks thanks for deliverance. There are dozens of psalms like that. And while this psalm has some similarities with that and has the feel of a psalm of thanksgiving, here's the difference. This one commentator explains the difference this way. In Psalms of Thanksgiving, the author, who's been delivered from difficulties that were at least as far as he knew, who, that were not, as far as he knew, punishments for sin, puts a great deal of emphasis on the Lord's grace in saving him from danger. And that's the Psalm of Thanksgiving. Conversely, in Psalms, when sin is recognized as the cause of the writer's duress, right, Psalm 32 that Pastor Will read from earlier, Psalm 51, in those, when his sin is the cause of the writer's duress, the primary cause, the psalmist makes that element primary and seeks deliverance from sin before anything else. And then, of course, again, emphasizes God as his only deliverer. Jonah, however, although he's in dire straits because of his own sin, does not recognize it and utters no word of confession. That's, what, that's what's missing in Jonah's prayer. That's what he doesn't say. He makes no mention of his own role in the events that brought him here especially his flight from the divine commission and his failure to repent. Why didn't Jonah say, this is my fault and repent on board of the ship? He could have done that. If he was repentant and recognized, he could have done it, but he doesn't stop this. And the problem with Jonah's mindset and Jonah's understanding is that regardless of how great you think the Lord's deliverance is, when that deliverance is separated from or removed from the reality of God's merciful deliverance, it's really no deliverance at all. Which is why as powerful as verse 17 is and has been throughout, throughout the ages of, of the church, the reality is that Jonah doesn't really understand the salvation that belongs to the Lord. Because the salvation that Jonah is rejoicing in is, is a salvation that's not merciful, it's deserved or expected or understandable. If the salvation that belongs to the Lord isn't a salvation that includes the merciful forgiveness of sinners, it isn't a salvation that rightly belongs to the Lord. Do you see that? And so if the salvation that belongs to the Lord isn't a salvation that includes the merciful forgiveness of sinners, it isn't a salvation that belongs to the Lord. There's no repentance. Jonah cries out for deliverance as if the troubles that assail him are unfortunate events, as if he's a passive, innocent sufferer like King David who's being pursued by Saul. And that's just not the case. We know, reading chapter one, that couldn't be further from the truth. And so the deliverance that Jonah rejoices in is not based on the Lord's steadfast love or mercy. It's based on the fact that the, it's not based on the fact that the Lord is slow to anger or abounding in steadfast love, But it's deliverance that's expected, explainable, or deserved. I am a Hebrew. God delivers his people from trouble. That's what he does. And Jonah seems to miss the very point of the salvation that that comes from the Lord. Because the reality, what's happening here in Jonah 2, is that the Lord is delivering the prophet who's rebelliously running from what he'd been commanded to do. He's rescuing the prophet who selfishly wants to reserve the right of divine favor for himself. And he's delivering the prophet who is blind to his own sin. That's what's going on. And when the Lord delivers this prophet, despite the continual sin and rebellion, that is true mercy and deliverance. That is the salvation that belongs to the Lord. Which leads to the last verse, our final point, point three, verse 10 of chapter two. The Lord delivers, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That's the beginning and end of point three. That's how the chapter ends. The Lord delivers him. Jonah is delivered. So that's the end of point three. All that we have to do left, let's briefly consider. Here's three ways to apply this passage. And it's all connected to what what Jonah knows about the Lord. So here's three points of application. They're they're imperatives, they're calls to action. And so, so this is what I think we can learn from here. First, because the Lord hears, cry out to him first application, because the Lord hears, cry out him. Though Jonah has some issues, I think we can learn from the truth of his prayer. First one is that the Lord hears, which is good news for God's people. And so if you're here and you're a believer, you've been reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the covenant God on your side and you have his ear. And so in the midst of trouble, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of anxiety, in the, in the midst of fear, the ears of the Lord are open to the cries of his people. And, and so, Christian, here this morning, what are you going through? You know, what circumstances are driving you to despair? What, what relationships are, are, are weighing you down and, and seem to be hopeless? What are you going through? Because it's in those circumstances that the Lord's hearing ear is the source of comfort and encouragement. You have the Lord's ear. So, the application is to cry out to him. Follow the example of our forefathers, of our our people throughout all the ages, of crying out to the Lord. And as we cry out, we must not make the same mistake that Jonah made. It's not just in trouble that we have to cry out to him, we also, recognizing our own sinfulness, must cry out to him in the midst of despair that comes from sin and guilt. We must not let our sin drive us from the Lord. That's what sin would have you do to flee from the Lord, just like Jonah, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just like like Peter when he betrayed the Lord, just like Jonah. That's what sin would have you do to say, God is not pleased with you and he will not accept you. How, How dare you think that the Lord would welcome you back? That's what sin would have you believe. And it is in that moment, in that despair, in that guilt, in that weight, that we even more so cry out to the Lord. Because even there, from the depths of despair, we have his ear. It is in the face of our sin and our guilt that we cry out to the Lord, precisely because the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So cry out to him, pray to the Lord who hears. Learn from the Israelites in Egypt from Psalm 32 and 51. Learn from the persistent widow. Learn from the testimony of the early church in the book of Acts. Cry out to the Lord in prayer because he hears. Second point of application, because the Lord is sovereign, trust him. Because the Lord is sovereign, trust him. It's right to see in the pursuit of Jonah, the Lord's love and care for Jonah. Jonah doesn't see it, but the Lord is after Jonah. The Lord doesn't let him go. He's after him. He he won't let Jonah escape. And the Lord is using whatever means necessary in order to reach and teach Jonah, in order to bring Jonah to a true knowledge of himself, because Jonah is the one who needs to change, not the Lord. And so the Lord is using all things to reach Jonah so that Jonah might be reconciled to him and recognize who the God of Israel is. And it's right for us to recognize that the Lord will do the same things in our lives. The Lord will use whatever means necessary to draw us closer to him. And often this comes in the form of discipline. Brother, sister, the Lord disciplines those that he loves. If if you're running from God, if you're living in sin, it's right for you to consider what the Lord is doing to draw you back to him. What are the circumstances that, that you are that you can't deal with? What, what are the pig sty that, that you find yourself eating from? The Lord is using means to draw you back to him because he cares too much to let you go. That is true of the believer. The Lord is too kind to let you run your own way. He is sovereign and he can use whatever he sees fit to accomplish his purpose. Which I recognize could be a frightening prospect. But it's only frightening if you don't recognize and consider the character of this God who loves you and is sovereign over all things. He's good and he does good. He's patient, he's merciful, he can be trusted. He is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to to his purposes. The Lord disciplines those he loves and uses all things to draw us back to himself. And so we ought to consider in what ways is the Lord using circumstances or things or relationships in your life to to point you back to him? One pastor says, few principles are more important in the Christian life than the practical recognition of the sovereign God and his gracious determination to draw us near to himself, whatever the cost may be. Whatever the cost may be. And there's no cost too high that would lead us back to him. I mean, a great example, which, which if you've been through a Bible reading plan, we've, we've gone through the life of Joseph. But what, what, a, what a roller coaster of a life that God meant for good. God used, God ordained for Joseph's good. And it, not, it all was not good, was it? He was enslaved. He was imprisoned. He was unjustly accused. He was forgotten about. And he was in the pit. But the Lord was using all those things so that Joseph could be used for his purposes. Finally, last point, because the Lord delivers, rejoice in his mercy. Because the Lord delivers, rejoice in his mercy. Rejoice in the salvation of sinners. This is the clearest application. We must see Jonah and see what Jonah misses and recognize our tendency to do the same. We're prone to miss the mercy of God. And so if we want to rejoice in the the deliverance of God without recognizing that everything that we experience— is from mercy, then we miss the point. We rejoice in his mercy because believer, everything you have is from mercy. Everything you have is from mercy. And we know what Jonah didn't know. We, we have seen in, in the message of the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Christ, we have seen the mercy of God on display. And so that's good news. If you're here and you're not a Christian, it doesn't matter what happens in your life, Right? The, the hope, the only hope that you can have to sustain you through good or bad is that God is merciful to sinners. And we would, we would call you as, as a church, as a pastor, as Christians, we would call you to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Because Christ has laid down his life so that you might be made alive. He died that you might live. And faith in him, repenting of your sins, recognizing that that your debt deserves punishment and payment, recognizing that that debt has been paid by Christ himself, that you might go free. That's the gospel, faith and repentance in what Christ has done. And so I'd I'd call you to that today. If you want to talk, I'm I'm happy to sit here as long as you want and, and explain to you the good news of the gospel. Because hear me say this. I don't know what your past with church is or your experience, but I am a sinner in need of mercy. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And that's a testimony of every Christian throughout the ages. And so we rejoice in God's mercy in delivering sinners like us. And we'll have to wait and see if, if Jonah gets there. But let's pray as we close.